In this lecture, I'll discuss two closely related moral questions pertaining to the virtue of honesty. The lie told to prevent some sin or crime and the act of hiding the truth. In the title of this lecture, I call such lies stretchers. That may be a stretch. But the statement that hides the truth is certainly a blind. In speaking, we use blinds to hide something from someone. We sometimes use stretchers when we are in a tight place. Uh, I will talk mostly about stretchers and lies and then say a little about blinds. I should make clear that I'm concerned with a particular virtue, one Aristotle and St. Thomas do not have a distinct name for, uh, for the virtue English calls honesty. But I'll be talking about this virtue at two levels, natural and supernatural, though I'll not always distinguish which is principally in mind. At the same time, the substance of the lecture does not have much bearing upon the merely natural life. Excuse me. There's probably not much reason even to point out that every lie is a sin, in some sense of the equivocal name sin, uh, unless someone is concerned with Christian perfection. I suspect that no one consider much, perhaps most of the acts we call venial sins, in any way wrong if you were not measuring right and wrong by Christian perfection. Even then, many faults and imperfections might demand more attention than the sort of lie I'll discuss tonight. But those of us who seek to cultivate the life of the intellect, of which speech is the immediate instrument, and to do this for the glory of God, must at least understand the proper principles in our use of that instrument. Before I turn to the substance of the lecture, I want to emphasize what I've just said about the sinfulness of the kind of lie I'm talking about here. No one is a liar or a bad man because he tells lies to prevent moral or bodily harm to himself or, other, or another. As St. Augustine says, one should not deny that men who only lie for man's safety, that could be salvation as well, have progressed much toward the good. These lies do not corrupt any virtue, nor can they make someone a bad man. And someone who tells these lies is not a liar. They may be parts of a moral act that is otherwise commendable, for which one who does them deserves praise, perhaps a medal, perhaps merit before God. At the same time, these lies do impede us in our effort to grow in virtue, uh, at least in the virtue of honesty. Most of all, they exclude some perfection that God wants to communicate to us through his incarnate word. I'll turn now to the substance of the lecture. I'll begin with some lies. I, I can't tell, quote, nearly as much of Huckfin as I want to, but uh, I'm going to begin with some lies told by the hero of Mark Twain's novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The lies occur at the center of a distinct adventure. Huck is with Jim, a runaway slave who is, of course, black. They're drifting down the Mississippi River. Jim is on a raft, perhaps in the wigwam they have built on the raft, while Huck is in a canoe. In presenting these lies, I'm assuming, as the novel clearly does, that to return Jim to slavery would be wrong and unjust. The passage reads. Right then, along comes a skiff with two men in it with guns. And they stop, and I stop. One of them says, What's that yonder? A piece of raft, I says. Do you belong on it? Yes, sir. 
Any men on it? Only one, sir. Well, there's five niggers run off tonight up yonder above the head of the bed. Is your man white or black? I didn't answer up prompt. I tried to, but the words wouldn't come. I see I was weakening, so I just give up trying and up and says, he's white. I reckon we'll go see it for ourselves. Here Huck says that Jim is white for a good purpose, to keep Jim from being taken back into slavery. And this is the sort of example regularly marched out to defend the use of this sort of lie. In my judgment, there is no reason to think so simple a lie is very useful. Unlike those Huck goes on to tell, these marvels of invention are wonderfully clever and deserve a rhetorical analysis I cannot give here. Use of this sort of lie is parenthetically the backbone of the novel's charm. The men intend to see the man on the raft, and Huck encourages them to do so. I wish you would, said I, because it's Pap that's there, and maybe you'd help me tow the raft ashore where the light is. He's sick, and so is Ma'am and Mary Ann. Oh, the devil, we're in a hurry, boy, but I suppose we got to. Come, buckle to your paddle, and let's get along. I buckled to my paddle, and they lay to their oars. When we had made a stroke or two, I says, Pap will be mighty much obliged to you, I can tell you. Everybody goes away when I want them to help me tow the raft ashore, and I can't do it by myself. Well, that's infernal mean. Odd, too. Say, boy, what's the matter with your father? It's the, uh, well, the, it ain't anything much. <laughs> they stopped pulling. It weren't but a mighty little ways to the raft now. One says, boy, that's a lie. <laughs> what is the matter with your pat? Answer up square now, and it'll be the better for you. I will, sir, I will, honest. But don't leave us, please. It's the, the gentleman, if you only pull ahead and let me heave you the whole headline, you won't have to come near the raft. Please do. Set her back, John, set her back, says one. They backed water. Keep away, boy, keep to lured. Confound it, I just expect the wind has blowed it to us. Your pap's got the smallpox, and you know it precious well. Why didn't you come out and say so? Do you want to spread it all over? Well, I says a blubber, and I've told everybody before, and then they just went away and left us. With these white lies, Huck saves Jim... <laughs> With these white lies, Huck saves Jim from being taken back into slavery, a slavery the novel assumes is unjust and founded on much greater lies than those Huck tells. I will only add here, these men send Huck to a town 20 miles downriver with what Mark Twain certainly considers good advice. You tell them your folks are all down with chills and fever. Don't be a fool again and let people guess what is the matter. Clearly, this man to whom Huck told a lie to protect a runaway slave is advising Huck to tell a lie to help what he believes to be Huck's folks. I will not here distinguish between preventing evil and bringing about some good. What matters is that men who would almost certainly be angry that someone used a lie to help a runaway slave escape thinks it's morally acceptable to tell a lie to get help for one's family. This disagreement about just what good can one can tell a lie to obtain is important, but more important is the agreement of Huck and this man that sometimes it's right to tell a lie. 
The sort of lie I'm talking about here has the Latin name mendacium officiosum. I think the usual translation, officious lie, hovers between Latin and English. By calling this kind of lie a dutiful lie, a lie told from some duty to prevent evil or to promote the good, I hope to bring it all the way into English. Not the lie, the name. <laughs> the lie's already here. Uh, St. Thomas teaches that the dutiful lie is a sin, although a venial sin. I'll discuss his evaluation by presenting the argument he offers in defense of such a lie, and then his resolution of that defense. The defense St. Thomas offers arises in what we call an objection. Those unfamiliar with the form employed in most of St. Thomas' writings should note that he offers arguments on both sides of a question before he proposes his own judgment. This objection, therefore, is not his own judgment, but an opinion which he intends to solve by showing where it errs. Also note that in giving this argument, St. Thomas is not lying, uh, because he is speaking in persona, as if he were the person holding this position, uh, as the writing structure makes, sure, makes clear. The objection reads, furthermore, one ought to choose what is less evil to avoid the greater evil, just as a doctor cuts off a limb lest it corrupt the whole body. But that someone should generate a false opinion in another soul is less harm than that someone should kill or be killed. So a man can licitly lie that he might preserve one man from homicide and preserve another from death. I take this as more or less the position of Mark Twain expressed in Huck Finn and in an essay on the decay of the art of lying. Uh, <laughs> Huck certainly has the art. That's, uh, at present, let me point out two things about the argument St. Thomas gives us. First, he does not merely suggest that the dutiful lie is licit to preserve someone from suffering harm. He thinks the argument also applies to the effort to keep someone from doing harm, from sinning. Have some good examples for the Q&A if Mr. Jost is there. Uh, second, <laughs> second, the argument proceeds merely from the quantity of harm or evil involved in the act. St. Thomas Evers offers a resolution of his defense of the dutiful lie by making a distinction. This occurs in his reply to the objection just mentioned. The reply reads as follows. A lie not only has the definition of sin, from the harm which it does to one's neighbor, but from its own disorder, in ordinazione, as has, just, as has been said. But it is not licit to use any illicit disorder to impede harms and defects of others, just as it is not licit to steal so that a man can give alms, Robin Hood. Uh, and therefore, it's not licit to tell a lie for this purpose, that someone might free another from any danger whatsoever. Yet it is licit to prudently hide the truth under some dissimulation, as Augustine says, in Against the Lie. I'll return to the act of hiding the truth, uh, what I've called the blind. At present, note that St. Thomas does not teach here that deceiving the one who wills to commit some crime is the reason this dutiful lie is a sin. I do not deny that we cannot licitly will to deceive anyone, but still this is not the immediate concern of St. Thomas here. Rather, he speaks of the inordinatio, or disorder, involved in the act, and he makes the claim that one can never licitly use any illicit disorder for a good purpose. 
I want to focus on this disorder in two ways. First, I will do so by comparison with the disorder in homicide. In another work, St. Thomas argues that, quote, homicide, happens, uh, sorry, homicide sometimes happens licitly, so a lie can also happen licitly. When he responds to this defense, St. Thomas analyzed the acts mentioned. He begins by pointing out that homicide is, in fact, always a sin. He says homicide, too, is always a sin because it has an inseparable disorder annexed to it. For homicide means more than the killing of a man. Homicide means the undue killing of a man. And therefore, homicide is never licit, although to kill a man is sometimes licit. How St. Thomas distinguishes the disordered killing of a man from an ordered killing of a man is irrelevant here. What matters is this, that insofar as the names murder or homicide and lie signify something inseparable from disorder, we can never licitly perform either act. The disorder involved in homicide and lying is the reason we cannot perform such acts. The magnitude of evil is not the reason St. Thomas gives, Yet he's not saying that to lie is in itself equal in harm to murder. He merely is merely stating that lying involves a disorder inseparable from the act. I suggest the following comparisons. We sometimes cause one... Uh, I'm speaking generally of we. I'm not saying I've done this. Uh, we sometimes cause someone embarrassment and shame by charitably pointing out his faults. Other times we do this from spite and cruelty. Uh, clearly, this distinction has nothing to do with the amount of pain that someone might feel as the object of either act. The amount of shame and embarrassment is not the reason taunting someone is wrong. I see some little guilt looking on some of your faces. Uh, uh, the intrinsic disorder of the act is the reason. Uh, again, in war, men licitly kill other men Yet the least feeling of personal hatred toward the enemy introduces a disorder that constitutes some kind of sin, at least venial. You have to kill the enemy, but you can't hate him personally. Uh, I, I think you have to hate an enemy as far as you can. Okay, I'll turn now to focus directly on the nature of the disorder that St. Thomas considers inseparable, inseparable from lying. St. Thomas explains this disorder by referring to a passage from Aristotle's On Interpretation. He says, A lie is bad, evil, from its genus, for it is an act falling upon undue matter. For since vocal sounds are signs of thoughts by nature, it is unnatural and undue that someone signify with a vocal sound that he does not hold in his mind. Whence the philosopher says in Nicomachean Ethics 4 that the lie is in itself bad and to be avoided, while the true is good and laudable. Whence every lie is a sin, as Augustine too asserts in his book Against the Lie. In another place where he offers a similar argument, he concludes with this judgment. Whence every lie is a sin, however much someone lies for the sake of the good. This disorder occurs in the act of bringing a statement forth as a vocal sign. The, the one who lies does not bring forth the statement for its natural end. Note here, by the way, that speech does not have a nature as if it exists altogether all in its own right. The nature of speech is nothing other than a certain instrument of human nature. Speech is a certain expression of human nature. The lie offends human nature. 
Some who defend the use of falsehood or lies in moral action rightly point out that speech has many other uses than uh, many uses other than expression of the truth. We often use speech to express how we feel towards others or to entertain. In fact, Aristotle points out in On Interpretation, some forms of speech do not have truth and falsehood. He mentions prayer and implies what we call fiction or stories. I would add questions, which are never true or false, whatever they might imply, and they can work in jokes many times almost as good a lot of it would. Uh, these forms of speech have other purposes than the expression of truth or falsehood, and many statements that are true or false also have other purposes. But where these thinkers fail is in thinking that any principle of moral action can achieve further, sometimes even higher, purposes if it fails to achieve its first and definitive purpose. So punishment has many purposes, deterrence, rehabilitation, protection of the community. But the one who punishes does not justly attain any of these if the first and immediate purpose of punishment is missing, that the offender pays some penalty for his crime. We can't just arrest people because they're dangerous to the community, not justly. Again, music and literature have a great power to train and educate our passions, but they cannot do so unless they move those passions in a pleasing manner, which is their per first and definitive purpose. I propose that the reason many, perhaps most of those who are good and virtuous, including many Catholics, find it difficult to believe that lies are always wrong is because no passion is immediately moved in the utterance of, a of speech. We speak by an act of the will and not immediately through passions. For this reason, our passions toward lies arise principally because of their matter or their end. So Huck quickly calls the two men who enter into his adventures those frauds. He describes the dissimulation they use in robbing some orphans of their inheritance as disgusting. And when they pretend to mourn their dead brother, he says it was enough to make a body ashamed of the human race. When we consider lies told from our duty to fight such evils, our passions arise and rightly arise against these evils and against those who attempt to perpetrate them, and thus accidentally in favor of the lies. I suspect the comparison of these passions to our feelings toward the dutiful lie itself leads some to think the dutiful lie is not a moral evil, but only the sort of deprivation that we call the natural evil. My judgment that most people wrongly judge the dutiful lie and that they do so because they judge such acts through their passions should not suggest to anyone that I think the passions I have mentioned are wrong or that passions are merely accidental to our moral life. The love of telling the truth that defines honesty is not something distinct from the love of neighbor and the love of human nature that is definitive of the moral life universally. Yet the correct passions toward lies arise more immediately from our love of those with whom we speak, including ourselves, and from our love of our common human nature than to our passions toward other moral defects. Perhaps this is because the intellect is more the man than other, uh, uh, than other aspects of human nature. I'll look at the disorder involved in lying more closely 
through an observation made by St. Thomas, then through another passage from Huck Finn, uh, actually a couple of passages, finally I'll address the question through a, another kind of attention. The love that honest men feel for the truth becomes clearer in another way. St. Thomas recognizes that if there's no intention of saying something false, the statement does not have the complete notion of lie, and thus the speaker is not lying. Yet he still sees some opposition to honesty even in accidentally saying something false. This will surprise anyone whose honesty is not very strong. He says, that someone should say something true while intending to say what is false is more opposed to honesty than if one should say something false intending to say something true. I think everybody agrees with that. Here St. Thomas is comparing two men. One intends to lie and accidentally states the truth. The other intends to tell the truth and accidentally says something false. Most of what goes on in class, right? Uh, <laughs> in saying that one of these acts is more opposed to honesty, he implies that both are in some way opposed to honesty. I want to focus here on the act less opposed to honesty, intending to say something true while accidentally, while actually saying something false, he is, according to St. Thomas, in some way opposed to honesty. Because what is uttered is the matter proper to the act of lying. He says this despite his recognition that there is no moral fault here, no defect in the will. I'm sure he does not think we should feel any guilt about such an act or confess to a priest that we have done so. Still, this fact that merely uttering something false against his intention is opposed to someone's honesty manifests the integrity of the honest man's love of the truth. This focuses our attention on to, on to what it, me, this focuses our attention on what is most essential to this virtue. The honest man, through this virtue, desires to tell the truth not only out of concern for his moral state or his culpability, but principally from his love of the truth itself, as it exists in speech. And this is not something abstracted from his love of himself or of other men and women. He loves speaking the truth as a certain perfection of human nature. The more a man is honest, as anyone can see, the more he will take care to consider what he says, lest he express something false while believing it to be true. The discovery that he has said something false, even though he believes the statement true, is painful to such a man. No doubt St. Thomas felt some pain at a few errors he made in his earliest writings and corrected in the later ones. These concerned uh, the power of circumcision and whether Jesus uh, learned anything uh, uh, as he grew up. Uh, he changed his opinion on both of those uh, and corrected himself, made very clear that earlier he was wrong. This pain is not precisely the pain of guilt. He, he feels pain at having formed a false statement somewhat, a little more seriously, as a singer feels pain at having sung a false note. Uh, I know that pain very well. Central to the adventures of Huckleberry Finn is Huck's moral growth. This moral growth even distinguishes Huck Finn from Tom Sawyer. 
Huck has begun to grow up while Tom is still the same boy he was at the beginning. In no small measure, Huck's moral growth involves a growth in honesty. I'll take a few glances at one development in this growth and then focus on another. Huck's principal development in the growth in the love of honesty occurs while he is caught up in the endeavor of the two con men called the king and the duke. To defraud of their inheritance, three young women recently orphaned by pretending to be the English uncles of those young women. Huck expresses his contempt for their actions at various points in the narrative, but he does not dare to expose them for fear of, exposing, of their exposing Jim as a runaway slave. In Huck's conversation in chapter 26 with Joanna, the youngest of the three girls, Huck makes up a number of lies, more and more outlandish, about life in England. I should state here that I find little in the whole novel as entertaining as Huck's conversation with Joanna, usually called the hare lip. As he reports, when I got done, I see she weren't satisfied. She asks him, hey, you've been telling me a lot of lies. Huck denies that he has and even insists not a lie in it. She proposes that he lay his hand on this book and say so. Huck sees, says, I see it weren't nothing but a dictionary, and makes clear he felt some compunction about swearing on the Bible. He felt no such compunction about uh, repeating his claim that there was not a lie in it on a dictionary. <laughs> she responds, well then, I'll believe some of it, but I hope to gracious if I'll believe the rest. At this point, Joanna's two sisters enter. The eldest, Mary Jane, asks Joanna what she refuses to believe. Even before Joanna responds, Mary Jane insists it is not right nor kind for Joanna not to believe Huck, especially given that he is a stranger and so far from his people. Joanna defends herself reasonably enough by asserting that he's told some stretchers, I reckon, and I said I wouldn't swallow it all. Mary Jane's response is a lesson in the good man's obligation to treat others as honest people, especially when he is a host. I don't care whether it was little or whether it was big. He's here in our house and a stranger. And it wasn't good of you to say it. If you was in his place, it would make you feel ashamed. And so you oughtn't to say a thing to another person that will make them feel ashamed. Joanna objects. Why, he said... Mary Jane interrupts, it don't make no difference what he said. That ain't the thing. The thing is for you to treat him kind and not to be saying things to make him remember he ain't in his own country and amongst his own folks. This leads Huck to feel shame that he is cooperating with that old reptile, the king, to rob Mary Jane. The other sister, Susan, also reprimands Joanna, and Huck also feels shame that he is part of a scheme that will rob her. Mary Jane then took another inning at reproving Joanna, but as Huck notes, she did this sweet and lovely, which was always her way. Once Joanna relents, her two sisters demand that she ask, ask Huck's pardon. As Huck reports, she done it too, and she done it beautiful. She done it so beautiful it was good to hear, and I wished I could tell her a thousand lies so she could do it again. This leads them to feel yet more shame 
This is another one that I'm letting him rob her of her money. While the story involves many more important elements of virtue, I merely want to focus on one. Huck feels a joy that Joanna apologized for saying she did not believe him. He emphasizes this by saying he wished he could tell many more lies so she could do it again. That is, so she could affirm her trust in him. Huck adds, And when she got through, they all just laid themselves out to make me feel at home and know I was among friends. He then wants to be honest, including much more than telling the truth, as a response to their trust. But another experience makes Huck reconsider his attitude toward lying at a more fundamental level. Two chapters later, Huck comes upon the elder sister, Mary Jane, weeping over the separation of mother and children in the sale of the household slaves by her uncles. To think, she says, they ain't ever going to see each other anymore. To comfort her, Huck blurts out the truth that he knows they'll be together again and within two weeks when the illegality of the sale has become clear. As Huck says, laws, it was out before I could think. Mary Jane begs him to repeat this statement and Huck then reports his thoughts before he goes on to reveal the fraud being practiced against her and her sisters. The passage deserves quotation at length. I see I had spoke too sudden and said too much and was in a close place. I asked her to let me think a minute and she sat there very impatient and excited and handsome but looking kind of happy and eased up like a person that's had a tooth pulled. So I went to studying it out. I says to myself, I reckon a body that ups and tells the truth when he is in a tight place is taking considerable many risks. Though I ain't had no experience and can't say for certain. <laughs> but it looks so to me anyway. And yet here's a case where I'm blessed if it don't look to me like the truth is better and actually safer than a lie. I must lay it by in my mind and think it over sometime or other. It's so kind of strange and unregular. I never seen nothing like it. Well, I says to myself, at last, I'm a going to chance it. I'll up and tell the truth this time, who it does seem most like sitting down on a keg of powder and touching it off just to see where you go. <laughs> this reconsideration of the role of truth in human interaction comes about from Huck's love and esteem for Mary Jane and her sisters. With them, he first encounters a world in which honesty and the truth are principles of common life. No one should feel surprised if, like Huck, many people feel the lie is very useful in many situations. Such people have rarely, perhaps never, found themselves in a moral world in which it seems safer to tell the truth. They come to believe with some degree of responsibility that expediency and self-interest really are the proper principles of moral action. Many hold this worldly view of morality, despite recognizing now and then that it seems that things should be otherwise. In fact, some Catholics who defend the dutiful lie, or defend dutiful lies argue they are illicit because of the fall of man. They rightly point out that we now need to use speech to defend ourselves and those we love from others who would do us harm. Some, uh, sometimes we have an obligation to defend ourselves somehow. 
They think these needs make it licit to use falsehood rather than the truth as means to these ends. I'll begin to take my, up my last perspective on this sort of lie by pointing out three things I have no time to examine in detail. First, as many who defend using falsehood or lies in such straits recognize, we cannot use moral evil to bring about good, even if we sometimes excuse such moral evils. Second, not every moral predicament has a just means of escape. In fact, the just man does not have as many instruments of action to achieve his good ends as the unjust man has to achieve his evil ends. Okay, even to say the unjust man has those means is, is a, a stretcher. <laughs> uh, third, if we attempt to fight our fallen nature and effects with a lie, we're employing the very instrument of the fall, the lie we learn there from, uh, from the serpent. How can Satan cast out Satan? As my last look at the dutiful lie, I want to propose a likeness in Huck's experience with the three Wilkes girls to Christian life. Huck realized that the lie is somehow appropriate to the world of rapscallions, uh, the king of the Duke, and inappropriate to a community founded on love and trust. So we must realize that the lie is a principle of human action introduced by man's fall and an instrument proper to fallen men as such. If someone uses the dutiful lie to avoid harm, especially great harm, I have no desire to reprimand him. But this is not the world we live in as Christians. This is not to say we live in a world that is safe and involves no harm or danger. Huck suggested the truth might be safer. He did not imagine there is nothing dangerous about the truth. To consider the moral world in which we really live more clearly, I'll look at the role of truth in Christ's passion, this discussion will also prepare, incidentally, for consideration of the act of hiding the truth, uh, setting up blinds. In particular, I want to ask why Christ did not use a dutiful lie during his passion. If telling a dutiful lie is admissible or even obligatory to prevent crimes and sins, we should ask ourselves whether Christ could have or should have used a dutiful lie. We believe he did not, and I suspect almost everyone here could suggest many reasons why he did not. By looking at these opportunities for such a lie in his passion, I'll focus on one reason. Christ intended to save us through the truth, and the lie could not help him do so. First, in Gethsemane, when he asked the crowd that came out to arrest him, whom are you seeking? They tell him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus does not lie. He clearly does this so that the crowd will not trouble the disciples who are with him. But St. John's Gospel also makes clear that he says, I am as a theophany, a manifestation of his divinity. It echoes the I am who am God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. This theophany is the expression of who Jesus is. Jesus reveals himself in Gethsemane as he is about to free us from sin as the same God who led the Hebrews out of Egypt. Then in his trial before Caiaphas, Matthew makes clear that Jesus spoke when Caiaphas said, I charge you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of, uh, Son of God. I assume that Jesus understood these words as a legal demand for an answer from the legitimate high priest of the Jewish religion. Before that, he did not respond. This, of course, is enough to prevent a dutiful lie, even if such lies are, are licit. So from justice, Jesus spoke the truth, Although it led to his own death, 
and the many grave sins committed against him and probably a, a greater misery for eternity for any number of those people then and a lot of us since. Still, he spoke the truth with some care to make clear he was not boasting or forcing someone else to publicly acknowledge his mission. He told Caiaphas, you have said it. There are many other interesting aspects there, but I'll have time to look into them. Finally, before Pilate too, Jesus was silent for the most part. I assume that this silence expresses the fact that Jesus did not recognize the authority of Pilate. He didn't speak to Herod either. John's Gospel, however, reports a conversation between Pilate and Jesus. I'll not look at it in detail. I'll merely highlight two elements of this interrogation. First, as with Caiaphas, Jesus does not speak to Pilate defiantly. He asks him, are you saying this of yourself or of others told you about me? Just as Pilate is attempting to free Jesus, so Jesus is attempting to keep Pilate from greater responsibility in this action. He does, not, he does all but deny that he is a king. Finally, when Pilate re recognizes that Jesus has implicitly affirmed that he's a king, Jesus clarifies the nature of his kingdom by saying, for this was I born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. For everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Those who are of the truth are of his kingdom. Jesus came into the world to save us by testifying to the truth. How could a lie help him do so? Jesus had the most perfect knowledge of the good, of good, the good and evil that would, would result from his actions. And this evil even included greater suffering for eternity by rejection of the truth by which he saves us from damnation. He has the greatest love for all, my, all mankind, and he did every action from a love for every one of us. When speaking to Caiaphas and Pilate, he speaks from love of them and from love of each one of us. But he cannot speak a lie before them because the lie cannot save anyone from sin and misery. Only the truth can do so. He speaks the only truth to them that can save them from misery, even though it's going to bring him great harm, even though it might bring them greater harm than they would otherwise have because there's no other way for them to be saved from misery and, and damnation. Only the word of God, eternally expressing the truth subsisting in his Father, can save us. And he saves us by becoming man to testify to this truth, that the truth can save us. Yet Christ was silent during much of his passion, and he expressed some of the truths he told in his passion with only an indirect opposition to those he speaks to. Broadly speaking, silence is a way to hide the truth. And while indirect expression of the truth is not, excuse me, and while indirect expression of a truth is not the act of hiding the truth in the strictest sense, it expresses the same love for the truth as an instrument of human action that motivates the act of hiding the truth. St. Thomas says, it is licit to hide the truth prudently under some dissimulation. Now me. We cannot, however, hide the truth in every human action. Sometimes we're obliged to speak by one sort of law or another. This is among the first things we teach a child, that he must answer his parents' questions, but not those of a stranger. When we're obliged to speak, we must not remain silent. Then we are not free to say nothing 
or to refuse to answer a question. Prudence or some participation in prudence is the virtue by which we recognize this kind of obligation. A good example of hiding the truth occurs in the act of the apostles. St. Paul was brought before a council composed of Pharisees and Sadducees because he was preaching Christ. Quote, Then Paul, knowing that one part of them was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, cried out aloud in the council, Men and brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I am being tried for my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, there was strife between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was split. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, and the Pharisees believe in both of these. Uh, it, it didn't do him much good <laughs> in the long run. <laughs> uh, but but uh, certainly put an end to that day's uh, uh, procedure. Here St. Paul hides or conceals one truth by hiding another, by telling another. Excuse me. He conceals one truth by telling another. He hides the truth that he is being tried for his belief in Christ's resurrection by announcing that he is being tried for his hope for the general resurrection, of which the resurrection of Christ is the first principle and cause. He doesn't mention that. When there is no obligation in positive or natural law, the virtuous man has no obligation to express any truth requested of him. Some virtues, such as justice, humility, or friendliness, may urge the virtuous to be silent. Likewise, many circumstances may suggest that silence is prudent, time, place, the interrogator, and so on. When, and only when, so far as I can see, a man can legitimately remain silent, he may also choose to hide the truth. That is, to speak in such a manner that conceals some truth that is of interest to the other party. I note here that I presently use the phrase hide the truth to speak of an act of speaking rather than silence. This is the strict sense of it, the strictest sense of hiding the truth. In concrete circumstances, these two actions, refusing to express some truth and hiding the truth, blend into each other. Clearly, we sometimes refuse to speak, not by actual silence, but by saying something. I'm not free to discuss that, or that's no concern of yours. Again, someone may change the subject, and this can be done in two ways that can be quite distinct. One might do so pointedly, looking the other in the eyes, and ask, are you expecting this weather to last? As a clear, though implicit, refusal to answer. One might also bring up something hurriedly, I've been meaning to ask you uh, as a distraction from some uncomfortable subject. In this last case, the speaker may well speak close, so close to the original subject that someone hearing believes that he's in fact spoken about the matter of interest. For example, asked about something, uh, he may state some truth that suggests he does not know. I would hate to think a friend of mine did something like that. Uh, the very fact of stating, I was just thinking of asking you that question, uh, necessitates the truth of the statement. When and to the extent the speaker himself recognizes the possibility that someone listening will think he has addressed the matter of interest, he is hiding the truth in the strictest sense. So far as I can see, hiding the truth always has some share in discreetly changing the subject. One hides the truth to the extent that the change is not apparent, 
By making the changing obvious, one implicitly refuses to speak to the subject. In some sense, hiding the truth as an act distinct from refusing to speak to the question at hand lies between the two extremes of silence and a contemptuous, contemptuous refusal to answer, to respond. The one hiding the truth intends not to speak to the point without calling attention to this fact. He considers the question or comment in some way uncalled for without expressing this. So far as I can see in a virtuous character, hiding the truth is difficult to understand unless the speaker finds himself situated in some way between these two extremes. Because hiding the truth is to express one truth in order to avoid manifesting another, almost anyone who hides the truth gives occasion to believe he speaks precisely to the matter of interest. Usually the truth used to hide uh, is relevant to the truth hidden. Anyone intending to hide the truth knows that the speaker may take that occasion and form a false opinion. This makes a lot of people to think that it's really just a form of lying. Uh, he recognizes to himself, I do not wish to address this matter, nor do, I wish to, nor do I want to call attention to the fact that I'm not addressing this matter. For this reason, hiding the truth has an intrinsic danger. Often one who hides some truth hopes the one hearing will conclude something he has not said, something false. Yet he cannot rejoice in his power to bring this about as if bringing this conclusion to the hearer's mind were his proper intention. Should he distinctly intend to form the false opinion, his speech would have deception as its purpose and would differ from a lie only accidentally. Many find it difficult to make this distinction, but as St. Thomas teaches, Sometimes someone is deceived because another proposes something false to him, and sometimes someone is deceived because that other does not open his mind to him. In the second case, the speaker need not intend that someone listening forms a false opinion. He may well hope that the speaker jumps to the wrong conclusion. Still, this is not the proper effect of the evidence offered. He is not the proper cause of that the other forms a false opinion, he only intends to hide the truth. This seems absurd to some people. A speaker cannot, they claim, say something he considers likely to have as its effect a false opinion in another without intending that the other form that false opinion. I do not think it absurd, although I recognize that without perfect honesty, it is very difficult. For those who judge moral action by what is possible to those of, of a middling virtue, the difficult and the impossible are more or less the same. The case can be clarified by a similar one, the attempt of a private citizen to keep off an attacker. The defender may use force and even deadly force. He may know that his shot will kill the assailant if this is the only way to repel an attack. But he cannot want to kill the, from anger or from vengeance. He cannot intend to kill the attacker. Sometimes the man who kills in self-defense says with great sincerity that he did not want to kill the attacker, that he begged him to leave, and so on. In hiding the truth, the speaker whose honesty is still weak in certain circumstances may feel a direct inclination to form a false opinion in the hearer's mind. This may be merely defensive. He hopes to protect himself or someone close to him from some evil. Again, this may arise from some hatred or contempt, perhaps a just hatred and contempt toward the person to whom he speaks. 
Yet again, attention to his own cleverness may lead the speaker to feel some vainglory in his ability to fool someone. Huck expresses this kind of vainglory when he refers back to his building a fire to hide his departure with Jim from Jackson's Island. Anyways, they stayed away from us, and if my building the fire never fooled them, it weren't no fault of mine. I played it as low down on them as I could. In my judgment, so long as such intentions remain secondary, they make the act of hiding the truth imperfect, but do not, do not make it a lie and therefore a sin. Uh, there are very few Christian acts that are perfect. Very, very few. These are acts, oh, sorry, not the ones I just talked about, but acts, those acts. Uh, uh, these are acts in which we must be, uh, hiding the truth is the kind of act in which we must be cunning as the serpent, yet innocent as the dove. What we admire about Huck Finn is his use of cunning for innocent purposes. This makes him the exemplar of natural virtue in American literature, almost as Socrates is the exemplar of acquired virtue in Greek literature. Huck is even more cunning than the con men and can con from them what they have conned from others, and he does this without becoming jaded or wicked. But we forgive him, as we would not forgive the two con men, the king of the duke, with the natural, within the natural temporal order, which must put up with and allow many evils to maintain a human world in which the good can flourish. But we also and especially live in a world that Christ has transformed by uniting us in and through his passion to the very first truth in all of reality, the trinity of persons in God. By our faith in this truth and in his incarnation, Christ is now transforming the world in and through our own moral actions. But as we see in the Passion, Christ himself is unable to lie to Caiaphas or Pilate or the crowd, characters not so different from Huck's king and duke, to bring about his own ends. If he cannot lie, and our Christian action proceeds from the truth in him, why should we imagine that we can't? 